Last week, we opened up with a scenario where we had studied for a test. We thought we were ready for that test, but when we took the test, we find out that we actually completely and utterly failed. We failed that test. But the teacher, being a gracious person, offered us a chance to retake it. And hopefully, we said, we'll pass the test the second time around. We use this story to compare it to the disciples, the disciples in the Gospel of Mark. They are being given miracle after miracle after miracle from their teacher, Jesus. And they are to learn something about who Jesus is. But every time, every time the disciples are tested, they fail miserably every single time. Even after witnessing the multiplication of bread and fish, not just once, but twice, they are still failing to grasp who Jesus is and their need to look to him, to trust him, to satisfy their every need. It's like a student or us who receives numerous chances from their teacher to retake a test. And they're failing it not just once, not twice, three, four, five, six times. And we're wondering, is there any hope left for the disciples? I mean, after all that they've seen Jesus do, after all they've heard, they're still failing to get it. Is there any hope for the disciples? Or will they remain spiritually blind and deaf to Jesus' word forever? This brings us to our text in the Gospel of Mark this morning. Would you go ahead and turn with me to Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 33. And here we find the turning point in Mark's gospel for the disciples. Follow along as I read Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 33. They came to Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and brought him out of the village. Spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking. Again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes. The man looked intently, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Then he sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he strictly warned them to not tell no one about him. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. 
You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Father, as we come to your word now, open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear, so that we would understand Jesus and know him all the more rightly. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Jesus arrives in Bethsaida after leaving the Pharisees behind. And as they arrive to shore, immediately a blind man is brought to Jesus by his friends. And it's these friends of the blind man that beg Jesus to touch him. No doubt they heard of how Jesus can simply heal a person just by touching them. And we've seen this many times throughout Mark already. So Jesus takes this blind man by the hand and he brings him out of the village. He brings him away from the public eye. Then he does something interesting. You probably caught this. He spits on the man's eyes. He spits on his eyes. You read that right. We'll come back to that. And then he lays his hands on him and asks, do you see anything? Now, now what do you expect the man to say? What do you expect to happen here at this moment? As we've gone through Mark up to this point, every time Jesus has touched somebody or done something, what normally happens? The person is healed instantly. He heals them fully and completely. That's what we're expecting here. And that's kind of what the man says, but he says, I can see, but the people, they look like trees walking. So the man isn't blind anymore. He can see, but he can't see clearly. Perhaps like some of us here this morning with glasses, right? You're not blind, but you know, you certainly can't see at distances across. It's blurry, it's fuzzy. Maybe people look like trees, perhaps. So Jesus does something here that he hasn't done yet before in the gospel. He partially heals the man. Rather than fully healing him, like we've seen throughout the entirety of the Gospels. So because of this, Jesus places his hands on him once more. And as the man looks intently, as he gazes with eyes wide open at Jesus, he restores the man's sight and he sees everything with perfect vision. And then Jesus says, go straight home. Don't even enter the village. And he's told many other people similar things after he heals, heals them. Perhaps Jesus doesn't want crowds interfering with him on this mission at this point, which was so common. We don't really know why. But as we contemplate this scene as a whole, what Jesus just did here, I hope, I really hope, there's some questions going through your mind at this point. For one, why, why in the world does Jesus spit on this man's eyes? Why does he choose to heal in this fashion? That, that should be the first question going through your mind. The second and more important question, why does Jesus not heal this man immediately? I mean, he could have, right? But he didn't. So the first, why does Jesus spit on this man's eyes to heal? And I think he does this to draw a connection to the healing that just happened in chapter seven, just one chapter 
back. You may remember this from chapter 7, verses 32 through 36. If you don't remember, go ahead and turn there. Jesus heals a deaf and mute man with his spit, just like he heals the blind man here with his spit. It's also important to note that just as Jesus takes this blind man away from the public eye, so he does the same with the deaf and the mute man in chapter 7. He takes him away from the crowd. But then we're left with the question, okay, how are these connected, right? How are these two healings connected by Jesus' use of spit? And I think there's at least two connections here. The first connection may be to the prophecy that we just read about in our scripture reading, Isaiah 35. The prophecy includes the reality that God would come. We read about this. He would come, he would redeem the lost. And the sign that would be that occurred is the blind eyes would be opened and the ears of the deaf would be unstopped and the mute would sing for joy and the lame would leap and jump for joy. And this is exactly, this is exactly what we are starting to see as Jesus does his various miracles throughout. We're seeing him fulfill these signs that God has come. He's redeeming people. So by Jesus using his spit in these healings, he is in a sense highlighting these two miracles, kind of like, you know, a highlighter that you might use in a book. You highlight important information. So Jesus is highlighting these healings. It's almost as if to say, don't miss this. Look, it's unique. Connect it to what's been said about the deaf, about the mute, about the blind. So this may be the first connection. But then the second connection, and definitely the stronger connection, is to the disciples. If we remember back to our text from last week, specifically chapter 8, verse 18, we find that though the disciples have eyes to see, they have ears to hear, they are not seeing and they are not hearing at all. The disciples are spiritually blind and deaf to the words and actions of Jesus. And we begin to wonder, right? What hope is there for these disciples? I mean, they are just not getting it at all. They're failing the test over and over and over again. I think these connected miracles are cluing us in to the answer and solution to the disciples' problem. Just as Jesus cures blindness, just as he cures deafness and muteness, so the disciples desperately need Jesus to open their eyes. They desperately need him to open their ears to hear him as they should. And so just as Jesus is their only hope to be able to see and hear him rightly, so he is only our hope too. He must open our eyes to truly see him for who he has revealed himself to be. So this is perhaps why Jesus uses his spit. But this brings us now to the second and more pressing question of the two. Why does Jesus not heal this man instantly? Was Jesus not powerful enough? Was Jesus failing to do something perfectly the first time in all of his ministry? Was he, did he just fail the first time? Was there something wrong with the area? 
And there's various commentators with answers to all of these, but I think Jesus was more than powerful enough. He could have. He could have healed anybody, anywhere, in any shape or fashion. So why does Jesus then decide to heal this man in two stages? What is it that we are supposed to see and learn from this two-stage healing? I want this question to loom in your minds as we continue reading this chapter. I want that to be on the back burner. Keep thinking about that. And we'll eventually get to the answer and see the connection that both Jesus and Mark intends us to see as we continue on. So after healing this blind man, Jesus and his disciples head out to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Jesus is avoiding the large cities and is instead sticking to the outskirts where the villages are. We find that he's now investing all his energy, all of his time into his disciples. He's looking to share with them more of who he is. And while Jesus is on the road with his disciples, he begins asking questions to them. Normally it's the disciples asking, you know, Jesus questions, but here we find Jesus asking them questions. And he asks a question we've been looking for an answer to all along in Mark. A question we've been working towards since the beginning. Who is Jesus? So Jesus begins inching towards this question, saying, who do other people say that I am? Who do other people say that I am? The disciples, having interacted much with the crowds, are well aware of popular opinion. Some say, you know, John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah or just another prophet of old. Now, the Jewish people thought very, very highly of John the Baptist and Elijah and their prophets. So they recognize Jesus is somebody very important and significant, but we just can't put our finger on it. We just don't know who this guy is. So they think perhaps this is the reincarnated John the Baptist. If you remember, John the Baptist was beheaded by Herod at this point. He was brutally murdered by Herod in a prison. And so some people, even Herod, think Jesus is John the Baptist. Others thought Jesus was Elijah. Elijah was one of the few prophets who did any miracles in the Old Testament. And it was also recorded that he never died. So some people think maybe this is Elijah. Maybe this is him. He's doing amazing things like Elijah. So the disciples tell Jesus what others think about him. But he really isn't interested in what others think about him. What he really wants to know is what the disciples think and believe about Jesus. So he directs the question to them, saying, but who do you believe me to be? Okay, that's what other people think. That's great. But what do you think? What do you believe about me? Now, what has happened every single time up to this point when Jesus asked them a question? What happens? They fail miserably in giving the right answer. They miss the point completely. So we're kind of holding our breath here. Are they going to get it this time? Are they going to understand? 
because we realize how many times they've missed the point, how they've failed the test. Our optimism about them getting the right answer here is at an all-time low. But then Peter surprises us. He says, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. Peter actually gets the answer right. For the first time, a disciple of Jesus draws the right conclusion. Jesus is the Messiah, or in the Greek, the Christ. He is the promised Savior of God. He's the anointed one, promised from long ago. Then right after getting this answer right, right after revealing this glorious truth that we've been working towards in Mark, Jesus warns them, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone that I'm the Messiah. Why? Why would Jesus tell them not to share this glorious news that they just heard? And one of the reasons, I think, is that the term Messiah or Christ had come to take on meanings that Jesus didn't want associated with him yet. What the majority of the people thought concerning the Messiah is that he would deliver the Israelites from Rome. He was going to lead national Israel probably through insurrection and away from Roman captivity. He was going to conquer their enemies and lead as king. This is what the Jewish people thought about the Messiah. So Jesus tells his disciples, don't speak a word of this to anyone yet. I want to inform you what the Messiah is actually about, what he will actually do to save and deliver the people. And it wouldn't be the way in which the majority of the people thought, not even the disciples. So he begins to elaborate on what he would actually do. Jesus reveals to us that far from leading national Israel and defeating her public enemies like Rome, Jesus would suffer many, many things. He would be rejected by the leaders of Israel. He would be killed. And then he would rise after three days. Now we hear this, we see it, but maybe we gloss over it without really giving it much thought. But I don't think we can fully comprehend how difficult it was for the disciples to hear this. I mean, imagine hearing all your life, the Messiah is supposed to liberate you from your enemies. He's, he's going to come, he's going to save you only to find out that the Messiah is actually going to suffer humiliation. He's going to suffer horrible things. Oh, and he's going to be rejected by all the leaders of Israel and then die a cruel death. Chances are, after hearing this, you're not hearing the part where he will be raised three days later in victory. You're still instead probably fixated on the fact that he's going to die. He's going to suffer. Yet Jesus knows the importance of his mission. And so he speaks openly about it, desiring that his disciples would catch on to the importance of his mission too. For his present mission was far more important than just defeating Rome or liberating Israel. What everyone misunderstood, including the disciples, is that they needed 
Jesus to save them from far greater enemies of humanity at large. They needed someone to save them from Satan, from sin, and death. Jesus is trying to explain this to his disciples, that the only way to truly be saved and delivered is through his death, and in so doing, accomplishing the plan of God as he's resurrected in victory. And Jesus is determined to accomplish this plan for his people. But Peter doesn't like what he hears. He doesn't like this talk of suffering. He doesn't like hearing about pain and rejection. He doesn't like hearing Jesus speak of his own death. So in front of all the disciples, the same man who professes Jesus is the Christ, he's the Messiah, he pulls Jesus aside and he begins to rebuke him. In the middle of Jesus trying to explain the most important rescue mission there ever was, Peter stops him and basically says, Jesus, stop talking like that. Don't speak of this again. This isn't how it's going to happen. We're not sure what made Peter think he was qualified to rebuke Jesus, but here we find him doing just that. Instead of learning, instead of listening to the Messiah, Peter tries to rebuke him and silence him when he says something he doesn't like. But Jesus doesn't have any of it. While Peter is rebuking Jesus, Jesus turns and he looks at his disciples. He looks at them and then he rebukes Peter strongly saying, get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Lest the disciples think there was any merit at all into Peter's rebuke of Jesus, Jesus makes sure that they understand that his type of thinking is satanic. This is why Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. According to Jesus, the type of thinking that says he doesn't have to suffer, he doesn't have to be rejected, Jesus doesn't need to be killed, is satanic. And we find Peter thinking the same thoughts as Satan. Hopefully, we can see this clearly now that we're on the other side of the cross. For we recognize that without the cross, without Jesus being rejected and dying in our place and being raised, there's no salvation. We would still be enslaved to sin and death and be under the power of Satan. For the disciples, they can't see this quite yet. They are instead like the blind man that we just read about. And this brings us back to the question that we left unanswered. Why didn't Jesus heal the blind man immediately, but did it in two stages? And I think it's because he wants us to connect it to Peter and the disciples. Peter has part of his sight restored. He can see Jesus is the Messiah. He can see something there. But things are still blurry and unclear. They don't see the need for Jesus to die. They don't see his need to suffer and be rejected. But Jesus will continue to work to restore their vision so that they too can clearly see. As we conclude 
this morning, reflecting on this story as a whole, who do you believe Jesus to be? Do you see Jesus for who he truly is? Or are you unsure, perhaps even blind to his true identity, just as many of these people were? Do you, like many of the Jewish people, think of Jesus as just another prophet, a powerful prophet, or a good teacher, or someone or something else? Or perhaps more popular in our culture today, do you believe Jesus just to be a good man, a myth, a legend, a symbol of sorts, but nothing more? If this is you, know that Jesus is so, so much more than any of that. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the promised one of God. Look to him, for he came, he suffered, he was rejected, and he did this for you, and he did this for me. Trust him. Follow him. Maybe you would say this morning, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised Savior of God. But perhaps like Peter, you are not seeing Jesus clearly yet. Perhaps you think Jesus is primarily about making my life better, about making my life easier, more cozy, more comfortable, about bringing health, wealth, and prosperity to my life. Peter thought similar thoughts. He thought he was going to ride into great prosperity and on power on the coattail of Jesus. He thought Jesus was going to grant immediate deliverance to Israel from her present enemies. But this wasn't the case. Jesus was not going to be used by Peter to gain access to worldly wealth, power, or prestige. So know this, if your mind is set on the things of the world, you will not find it what you look for in Jesus. For Jesus came not to give the disciples or us what we wanted, but what we need. And what we needed most of all was deliverance and salvation from the greatest powers of evil, sin, Satan, and death. And he did this through experiencing great suffering, rejection, and death on a cross. So who is Jesus to you? Is he the suffering Messiah that you trust, follow, and look to? Or are you still in blindness, trying to make Jesus or manipulate him into being something else? 